0: Welcome everyone. My name is Jeffrey Goodman. I am the director of marketing and development here at the YMCA of Northwest Louisiana. This is a brand new initiative for us. This is the first of what will be many in a series of podcast interviews we have with different people in our community talking about what life looks like from their particular lens and perspective. So uh, today, I'm, 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 he goes by Alvin and Al, I call him Al. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very uh, pleased to have the opportunity to sit down with Al Childs and you'll learn more about Al. So I'm not gonna give a lengthy bio, but you'll learn a lot more about Al as, as we go through this. So sit back and enjoy. So Al, thanks for doing this today. Thank you, Jeff. glad to be here. Absolutely. So we'll jump right in and for those at home, Al has not seen or has any idea of what I'm going to ask him today. So Al, my first question to you is, you have done something many others envy. You have some way, somehow convinced all three of your kids to stay and raise their families in Shreveport. With regards to this, what do you attribute your success to and do you have any advice for others hoping to achieve a similar result? Oh, what a great question. Yeah, Um,
1: I am truly grateful and and feel very blessed that my children and their children, my grandchildren, all live in Triple. Um, and I know that's an anomaly uh, and it's a, I, I get a lot of parent envy from it and I understand it. Um, I wish I could take a lot of credit for it, I, I don't really think I can. Uh, my wife, Lisa, could probably take more credit than I, uh, but the, I think mean, the main reason um, is we have a, a pretty close-knit, strong family connection. Now, I don't mean to say that we all get together twice a week and, and tell everybody all our secrets, um, but we we do things together, and we have done things together as a family um, the whole time. Uh, Lisa's family um, has a, a piece of property in it. Southwest portion of the parish, uh, and uh, it's a big farm, and uh, it's part of my deal when we got married is we would go there every Sunday, uh, and our kids have gone there on uh, most Sundays, and uh, that once a week connection uh, has been something that kind of really um, kept us together. Um, there's uh, one of my children uh, is really likes being in the woods. So, and he's the one with a PhD in chemistry, uh, and, but he wanted to be near those woods. Hence, he's a uh, uh But my other children, they, for one reason or another, they, they were able to find jobs here they like, that were really fulfilling. Uh, they had desires to be close to their family and realized that uh, the benefits of that were significant. Uh, that's what's happened. Um, it's it's uh, it's pretty cool. I agree with you on
0: that. So my next question is can you talk about some of the people in the community who inspire you? What business owners and or organizations currently get you excited by the work they're doing? Whew.
1: Businesses or business organizations are just principally businesses, huh? or or individuals. Uh, well, gosh, that's a that's a good one. Um, good question. Because I've had a lot of mentors in my life, um, and it's one of the things that has probably shaped me as much as anything. And um, I can't tell you why that's happened, but I think there's a part of me that just isn't afraid to ask for help. And one of the reasons I, I'm not too afraid to ask is that I have found that generally people want to help. Uh, and so that's a, that's been something, those kind of relationships I've enjoyed uh, over my business career. My uh, gosh, Dr. Charles Beard was a mentor extraordinaire, and uh, he taught me a whole lot. Uh, today, uh, uh, um, golly, I mean, if you're looking for somebody who is a, uh, an extraordinary example of an entrepreneur and, and a master of tasking, uh, I would have to put Rand bomb there at the very top. Um, I've known men in, this, I mean, in my lifetime who have been partners with, who work with, who have a lot going on. John Turner was one that was extremely busy and others, but none of them hold a candle to Rand. Uh, and he, uh, he's he been a great friend and a great partner and, uh, and I would have to put him up there on a pedestal in terms of uh, someone I admire as a business person and as a person as well. Um, there are others. Um, I'd have to say my partner John Beard uh, now, Dr. Beard's son, is somebody I admire a whole lot. Uh, and he is a, he is, he's a good friend and, and also a good confidant. Um, I'd have to rank my own partner, David Alexander, as somebody right up there. Uh, we uh, Our personalities and skill sets are complementary to each other. Uh, we we are similar in areas that are important to be similar in, and we are very different in other areas, and we bring different um, talents to the task, and that's a, that's always been really really a great partnership. Uh, it has been, but it is a great partnership. Um, to that's really all I can think of right now. I'm sure I'm going to think of some other guys and women in in just a minute, uh, there have been that I really, uh, really admire because there are, there are quite a few.
0: So, Al, you're the, you're the owner of Vintage Realty. Can you explain a little about the type of work that Vintage does and what are a few of Vintage's current projects? Sure, Jeffrey. Um, first of all, let me clarify.
1: I am an owner of Vintage Realty. I am not the owner, nor am I the controlling owner of Vintage Realty. So let, let me get that clear. Uh, it's very important. Um, so vintage is uh, is really active in a lot of different areas. Um, we are we are what's known we call it we call ourselves a full service commercial real estate firm, and by that it just means we offer serving real estate services to our clients from sort of the cradle of the grave. I mean from development through lease up to management to brokerage and sale and asset disposition um, accounting the, the whole ball of wax uh, and you know we we've done that taking that approach for a number of reasons one is because uh, we didn't think anybody else in this market was doing it and uh, or they were but not we thought we could do it better uh, and we also thought that uh, we needed to be able to add that whole package to be able to create the most value for our clients. And that has been proven to be true. Our clients like that approach. It's a one-stop shop for them, and, and uh, so it's been a, a, a good approach, very solid. Um, we've been, uh, in the last 20 years, uh, very, very active in, in different areas. One of the projects I personally was involved in, uh, I was most proud of, was the, uh, I developed with Wayne Fall was the Shops at Mead uh, Lifestyle Center here in Shreveport. Um, I could speak to you for three hours on that project and do a Harvard Business Case Study. It's an extraordinary story, uh, but the fact that it was done, developed, open, successful, and sold when it was sold is, uh, it's about, I mean, you, you could write a Cinderella story and it would be better than that. It was just, it was just, just something for a real estate developer to be able to Do something in a market that is high quality and brings something new to the market that's not here. I mean, that's what we all get our jollies over. I mean, that's what really gets you excited, and it's hard to do. Uh, You run into budgetary constraints, you run into market constraints, and and they're very big challenges. But we pulled that one off, and it was great. Uh, our company's uh, history and success in the multifamily area, arena, its apartment projects, uh, is truly extraordinary. Uh, David leads that whole effort, and uh, we started with development of Champion Lake I guess twenty five years ago, uh, and have done uh, development all over the state, uh, and now we, we I think we've developed twenty five hundred units, and. Uh, We also manage another thousand or so. So we're managing about 4,000 units, I think, in the state. Uh, And and we have the reputation of of doing a good project and and trying to manage them very well. Uh, That has been extremely challenging in the past few years uh, by some uh, acts of God. They're called hurricanes and floods, especially in South Louisiana. Uh, um, We thought Katrina was tough. And it was. Uh, it actually, our, at that time, we, I mean, it worked out to be good for us because we just developed a project. It was coming coming open right south of Baton Rouge, and we were the first place you stopped if you needed a unit. But, but the last series of hurricanes and floods was really challenging. But we're, we're working through that. Um, we've taken a conservative approach in terms of development risk over the years, and we have a. group of investors that have been with us pretty much from the very beginning and uh, they've done well and we've done well it's been a really great uh, uh, effort. Um, One of the things I'm most proud of although I'm not involved in it is uh, an effort we're doing now uh, that David heads American Southwest Real Estate Fund and it is a double bottom line fund that's a that's a fund in investment projects that have both uh, an economic return and a social return. Uh, ironically we this, it came about as doing this kind of efforts right down the street uh, with a local effort but, and that worked okay but not great. But the people who involved in that and some others wanted to join forces and expand that into an area that's pretty much kind of the southeast conference. Uh, so a big region and uh, <coughs> We we teamed up with a firm in Los Angeles, and they raised a bunch of money, and, and and did our first fund. And we our job is we don't do all the developments; we find developers who have projects that meet this criteria. We vet them, and we see that they get developed as they said that we want to, and they manage this as they say they they going to. And we're kind of the asset managers, uh, and you know I'd be dead gun if that if the first fund, which wasn't all developed and now we're into the selling phase of that and those people have done really well. And So now we're in the middle of another one that will probably be four times that large, uh, which is uh, it's really exciting. We've got a great team that's working on that. It gives our company exposure in a much larger geographic area, which is exciting because it's, it's hard to have all your eggs in one basket, be that Shreveport or Louisiana, or, or either one. So it's a, it's, it's, it's a good situation for us and I'm really happy about it. Um, but I, I'm, I'm proud of our whole team. We we manage um, a, a lot of square footage, of, of course, office space, uh, a lot of square footage for medical office space, um, and um, we, we we do a good job at that, and we take care of our clients. and It's a it's a it's a piece of the business that is not always recognized. It's not a piece of the business that, that you associate with the typical type A, uh, hard-charging real estate developer who comes in, flies in, is, swoops down, makes a great presentation, and then walks out with a big check. It's, a, it's more of a day in, day out kind of routine grind. But the funny thing is that doing that job is what creates the value over the years, and that's because it keeps your clients happy, and that's what creates the value, so it's a, it's a good deal.
0: Are there particular cities around the country that provide examples to you of what Shreveport should aspire to in the future? If so, can you talk about a few of the cities and the characteristics of them you feel we should strive to emulate? (laughs)
1: Yeah, I could talk about that subject, Jeffrey. For years, uh, I was personally involved and, and responsible for the performance of a bunch of office building in Treeport, Louisiana. And office building, demand for office space is directly tied to a variable called white-collar job employment. They relate directly, they correlate directly. And um, that particular sector in our community has not grown for the past 30 years. Uh, And it's been a, a tough, challenging situation. So I've looked at other comparable cities to find out what their office market was like, and what ours was like, and compared them to us. And, and uh, Jackson was one that's very in a lot of ways. Uh, but in Tulsa too, in, in terms of size, um, and Tulsa of course suffered the oil gas collapse as we did too. But those are just some cities that are similar. Um, Little Rock, I should add, because it's uh, it's done a lot in, in terms of. Little Rock and Jackson, of course, are the state capitals, and that gives them a small advantage, uh, gives them a large advantage. But two cities that come to mind that provide examples of what I call um, initiatives that have made a profound difference are Oklahoma City and Savannah. Uh, Oklahoma City's story is truly remarkable. Uh, I may have some of these years wrong and some of these dollars wrong, but I think about in the early 90s, about 1991, um, which wasn't a great time economically for the real estate business. um, The oil and gas business collapsed, the banking industry was collapsed. There were a lot of non-performing loans throughout the whole portfolio of every bank in the country. It was not joyous and free. Um, And Oklahoma City was not as much to the oil and gas business, so they were suffering too. But, principally because of some leadership, some extraordinary leadership provided by the business community, and that the chamber of commerce there, um, they came up with the idea of, they called it the MAPS program, can't remember what that stood for, but basically it was an initiative to raise money to go make investments in the community that we're going to create enriched cultural, uh, entertainment, and, and and infrastructure kind of things. And they did it by imposing a one cent sales tax for a limited period of time. I think it was five years. It could be seven. But I think it was five. And I believe the first one they did was two hundred fifty million dollars. And, and I, the projects they did range from stadiums to Bringing a riverfront arena, it's, just, it's extraordinary. But they did such a good job of it, and, it was, and they got so much confidence from the citizenry. They said, that was a good one, why don't we do another one? And the next one they did, I think it was an extension of that one, was I think $550 million, which is an extension of the same kind of stuff, except they threw in $170 million for the schools and their infrastructure, just to kind of upgrade all the schools. Um, I can't remember exactly what the MAP3 was, but they had another one after that, and Oklahoma City is a changed place because of that initiative, um, and I can't say we don't have anything they have, uh, because they, they do have some things we don't have, right? and they've had a larger presence of some major corporations and stuff. but. Basically, what made the difference was the leadership. I mean, it was the, it was it was that effort to make that happen. And uh, I've been there twice to look at that, and and, and it's a, it's something that, that I really believe under the right leadership could be done here. Another example, and this is just this is just this is such a small one, but it's just so, it just shows you what can happen if you have the right kind of leadership and vision. You ever been to Savannah? One. Yeah. Uh-huh. Did you go to SCAD, mm-hmm. Savannah College of Arts and Design? Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I can't remember what year that was founded. I think it might have been the 90s, too. Um, and, and Savannah was kind of floundering. It was a sleepy southern town with, a, with an aging downtown structure, and, and uh, uh, not any white-collar job employment growth, and no demand for office space, and all the buildings were just falling down, and leadership there identified and teamed up with a the guy they brought in. I think I can't remember who was. We was from Atlanta, or whatever, uh, and he along with some other people formed. Uh, they did the scan. Okay, now uh, I think initially it was for profit. I, I, I think it's, it's a private nonprofit now, but I don't know that for sure. But I mean. If you go to Savannah now, they don't have any empty downtown historic structures. Uh, they're all full of classrooms and restaurants and apartments and, and there's a vibrancy and stuff that's just extraordinary. And uh, you know, I've, I've thought to myself so many times, okay, um, here we are struggling to, to figure out what to do with our downtown. And, and, we were spending all these efforts, spinning our wheels, trying to get more what kind jobs, and then we need those. Don't uh, misunderstand me. But here's something that was done in a city that transformed their downtown that didn't depend upon bringing new businesses. It was a complete, complete adaptive reuse. It reuse. Now, I, it can be done. Is my point. And if it can be done there, it can be done here. And it just takes the vision and leadership. So. Those are my two examples.
0: As a local employer, what are some of the challenges you face recruiting and retaining people?
1: Same ones you hear from everybody. Uh, um, people don't always want to come to live in Shreveport, they have in Louisiana. Uh, it's not we, we run into that occasionally um, uh, a lot of yeah, we face different kind of uh, employment challenges Jeffrey because we have different kinds of businesses um, right now finding people to manage and maintain multifamily family property complexes especially in South Louisiana is a real challenge because the people who have those skill sets can work in a lot of other places. And there's a huge demand for them. And, and so they get paid for lots of opportunities somewhere else. So that's a real challenge. Uh, here in Shreveport, um, I mentioned earlier about we do commercial property management. Uh, people don't realize that there's a specific job as somebody who is a property manager. Now, what skill set does that require? where do you go to college learn to be a property manager? <laughs> Yeah. Probably a skill of hard knocks. Um, and you kind of grow your own or you hire one that's done somewhere else. Uh, there's not a stable full of a half a dozen pro- course, of property managers here in Board that are just waiting to look for a job. So we have to usually go outside the market to find somebody and sometimes that can be challenging. Uh, uh, you know, it's right now, and this is a, it's really interesting. I, I was thinking about this this week. Um, I think, don't hold me to these numbers exactly, I think we have 180 employees or 180 positions and I believe we have 25 open, okay, and that's been higher and it may be less than 25 right now. Um, a lot of those are in the multifamily apartment area I mentioned, um, but if, if somebody wants a job today in this market, uh, well I think pretty much in the state of Louisiana, like you get one, and there are lots of alternatives for people Uh, and that's of course as a result of a lot of things that happened in the last couple of years but it reminds me of of, of a study that a sociologist at LSUS named Kim Hines did. Uh, I'm guessing in the 70s. Uh, It was a very far-sighted study. He was the first person who statistically showed uh, that Shreveport was gonna become uh, a majority-minority city. And he predicted when that was gonna happen, and it did. But then he predicted out ahead about what were gonna be the impacts of that and how it was gonna affect a lot of things. One of the things he he mentioned was uh, at that time if you were an employer uh, 25 years hence from that time, uh, you better feel comfortable hiring a lot of women and uh, a lot of blacks because that's where you're that's where, that's where your employees are going to come from. Of course, that's definitely true, uh, which is, which for that reason was a great prediction. It's, I think it's great because there are opportunities here. Uh, I was thinking about that given that what he predicted at the time there was going to be a scarcity of the employment base. Everybody's going to be fighting for the same people. And that's kind of what's happened, but that's it's been exacerbated by the pandemic and all that. But uh, those are our challenges. And they, and they, we are, we're blessed uh, to have a a leadership team who's been at Vintage uh, for many many years, in, in many cases twenty five years. So it's a uh, we're, we're very fortunate. They're a great team. I'm really proud of. It, uh, it, it does. I love going someplace and, and whether we manage it or not, and, he, and people talking about it, not knowing who I am, and here they talk about. You're not gonna believe what happened today. Just, it just really brings up a lot of pride. I, I really enjoy that.
0: All right, Al. I've I've known you for a long time, and I'm always struck by your upbeat, optimistic nature. What makes you prideful of this community? Wow. Well, you know, yeah. Now we're getting to I'm... Uh, question questions I thought you were going to ask me.
1: <laughs> um, what makes me prideful of this community? That's a great question, Jeffrey. I, um, I am proud of this community. Uh, I think we've done some remarkable things in our history, truly remarkable. Um, I I also recognize um, part of our dark past too, uh, where we have um, been Less than open, uh, we've been exclusionary. We've been um, just um, embracing a lot of the values that I, I find not desirable. Um, but I think some of those have held us back. Um, we have um, when you when you think about some of the things that have happened here in our history. Um, You can go all the way back. Let's just take, I I don't want to give you a history lesson, but let's just take Barksdale Air Force Base, okay? I mean, I think in 1927, group business people uh, became aware of an Army Air Corps initiative. They were looking for a base. 27,000 acres. And uh, these guys, they were all men at the time, uh, you know, put together a team to try to go after that, and they went after it with a vengeance. And I think they failed on a couple of attempts, but they, you know, ultimately, ultimately hired a crop duster pilot to fly over Bozier and they identified that track where Markdale is, 23,000 acres, and uh, uh They uh, convinced the voters of Shreveport to pass an initial bond issue to buy the land and give it to the United States government. Uh, Now, let me just give some context here. This was that actually happened about 1929. Does 1929 then anything else happen in 1929? Okay, sure. I mean, you know, the stock market crashed. The economy was starting to be in a ditch. but the voters of Shreveport, well, we voted differently then. You voted about how much your tax assessment was, uh, but um, voted to, this, this one, they voted this law that should could go buy that land. Now, in 1929, we didn't know that Hitler was gonna rise to power. And, and this is extraordinary. You really had to put some context on it. We didn't know what role airplanes were gonna play as a military, they weren't, they didn't have a separate branch then, but these visionary people um, went out and passed a bond issue, about 23,000 acres, to give the United States government for an Air Force base. Well, it turns out to be an Air Force base, it was an Army Air Force base. And when there was no immediate threat of a war, and we didn't know what, I mean, come on, that is visionary. Of course, there were only 15,000 full-time and reservists out there now. I mean we, we know what kind of effect that has on this community in many ways. One of the, our best ways to get an employee here is for them is to raid a spouse that somebody who's stationed here in Barksdale. Of course the only drawback there is that they may not be here long. but that is a great place to get people. Uh, so God, that's a visionary thing. I'm proud of that. Uh, there's similar stories. Golly, um, in, um, in the um, in the Great Depression that's not the one in 1929 that's the one in the late 80s, early 90s when we, our whole economy was in a ditch here, I mean just really in a ditch uh, you know well let's even go back further the map let's go back to the middle 60s when oil companies, the major oil companies, exited the into Houston. I've heard it described that we lost all our Sunday school teachers. I mean because we just we lost this hardcore people that were working in those companies that we didn't have in the community. It was pretty much the doldrums around here and uh, we would enjoyed a thriving oil and gas economy. We were the pipeline capital of the world. We weren't anymore and we have not had a manufacturing base. We were uh, uh, isolated and estranged from leadership in Baton Rouge and also in Washington. Uh, LBJ was president and have you ever heard his comments about Shreveport? He didn't like the Ewing family and the Shreveport Times. He, he said it publicly and I'll tell you what he said publicly because he wouldn't want that on your thing. But, uh, um, but there were a group of Business people who decided, okay, we need to go make peace on this. We need to go make peace in Baton Rouge, and uh, and and there was a gubernatorial race between John McKiffin and, and Charlton Lyons. Charlton Lyons was a well-respected local person, just a absolute true gentleman, a great man. Uh, and of course, this community supported him; it came out and drove for him. But there were some who said. He's a great man, but he's not gonna win. We need to be over here. And so John McKinney won. And so we had a connection to John McKinney, and, and he did things for Shreveport. Um, and then they reached out to LBJ. I've got a picture of a bunch of men up there in the lawn with lawn uh, sitting next to LBJ sitting down there pulling the ears of one of his beagles. Uh, <laughs> and they were up there lobbying for the post office here. I mean, so we changed things. And we also made peace with a gentleman in the United States Senate, happened to be the chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, his name is Russell Wall. And we told Russell we needed some help. And as a result of that effort, over a period of years, the community got in other efforts too. We got a Western Electric plant, a General Motors plant, a GE plant, and I mean it it because they're not here anymore. But at one time we had a manufacturing base and as diversified an economy as any city our size in the country. Uh, And that was a direct result of people saying, okay, we need to address this problem. We don't have anybody, nobody's taking this initiative. We've lost this segment of our economy, we need to go, we gotta go make peace and see what we can do. And that happened. Uh, Gosh, the whole story of the med center, the med school, all that, Uh, the vision, uh, I guess that happened in the early 70s, Uh, the vision men and women who went down and, and uh, passed the legislation to get all that funded and then the leadership here. And you know, they employ 4,000 people today. And the impact of, of that of that institution economically and culturally and intellectually is profound. I mean, I think they see 150,000 patients a year, 650,000 uh, visits. <laughs> That's called impactful. Uh, uh, my and, I, and the coolest thing about it is my wife worked there, and she told me the first week she worked there, she was in the operating room, and she said that she would be in the operating room, and you, somebody walked through the door, and they could be black, they could be white, they could be Muslim, they could be Jewish, they could be Christian, they could be anything. There was nothing about what they had on that said what they did and they could pick up a scalpel or a bedpan. You had no idea. And I went, now that's pretty cool for Shreveport, Louisiana. And I mean and we've had that kind of institution here. And that, I mean that's systemically the way that is. It's just really cool. Um gosh, Jeffy, there's another one that I'm super proud of that a little effort you might have some familiarity with well, other things called Cyborg. Um you know Again, in that great depression, uh, our, our community was in the ditch economically and psychically, I and mean, we were just beaten down. Let me say that I'm speaking as if I was, anyway. I'll say that, but I think the community was too. And your mother and a few other people had the vision of that, of that cycle deal, you know, and, and they just wouldn't let go of it. And that was the first. Project this community embraced and did after going through that whole um, gut-wrenching experience, and uh, and it was a project that was embraced by the entire community. You could see political enemies standing side by side in support of You could see blacks and whites, public schools, private schools. You saw everybody was behind it, and that was a, golly, that was something to really be proud of and of course that's just awesome. So I'm proud of those kinds of things. Um, I'm proud of what our community's done. Um, We could do a whole lot more Uh, but those are some examples of the things, kinds of things that make me proud to be from this area. The one message I'd love to be able to get to people is that we're small enough where you can make a difference. Uh, I mean, actually, you can do that in in a big city, too. I mean, (laughs) your mother's a testament to it. Of course, she's not just anybody. But I mean, you know, you, you can make a difference here. You really try to get involved and make something happen. And I go back to what I said earlier. I think people generally by and large
0: want to help. Uh, They just need to be asked. I have two final questions for you. (laughs) Good. And they're both short in terms of the questions, not necessarily answers. (laughs) The first is what is holding us back? <clears throat> boy I think about that a lot um,
1: and it would be so easy to give the answer well we're not a state capital we don't have any major um, fortune 500 presence here certainly no headquarters and very little presence at all no regional or district offices um, we have no uh, the national banks, we have the branches, our, our utilities are, are, are not based here any longer. We don't have the base of locally owned business support that communities go to for making things happen and funding. But we have other things. I mean we don't have those but we do have a generous, a generous citizenry. There's wealth in this community that is uh, willing to make things happen. Um, so, yeah, we don't have this, but we do have that. Um, this is going to be probably such a glib answer, uh, but I really believe it. I believe the one thing that's holding us back is leadership, uh, and I'm not trying to pick on anybody who's in a position of leadership right now. Uh, we have some great leaders here now, um, but we don't seem to have the kind of leadership that can identify and formulate a common vision, that can be embraced to the point of a passion by our citizenry, and then come up with strategies that, that um, that people will promote and get involved in and implement and make things happen. You know, these examples I gave earlier, they're a bit extraordinary. And maybe they're not good examples here today, but, but they didn't start. There wasn't, wasn't some savior that came down into the community and said, I'm going to fix everything for you. These are people who have their ideas here. Uh, they saw the advantages. They had to take advantage of opportunities that were presented. Uh, we can do that today. Uh, I can't tell you who those leaders are, but I can tell you where they are. They're in your generation, not mine. Uh, and they are, heck, they're, they're in the schools, they're in the uh, religious institutions, they're in government, they're in business, they're in the civic organizations. Uh, and here. Uh, I mean, they're here. I mean,. we have lots of talent in this community i I really believe that i may i may be naively optimistic when i say that but i believe it's here Uh, we don't have a community spirit of can do we are provincial in our thinking we are scared that somebody might get something that we want Uh, at our expense zero-sum game mentality uh, We've got to get over that stuff Uh, and and find things that are win-win for everybody. Uh, You know, it's not like the impossible. I mean, there's some, um, you know, unfortunately, in today's political environment especially, it pays to be divisive. Um, And sure, we we have some divisive elements in the community. Uh, And and good reasons for it. But I got to tell you, uh, we've got a lot more in common than the things that divide us. Uh, I mean, I learned that all the time. And um, I mean, everybody wants some of the same things. I mean, we we all want good schools, and we all want a safe place to live, and we we all want economic opportunities for our children and an economy that's cooking. And, uh, you know, that's not magic. And those are things, how you get there, I don't know, how you build a consensus to, to adopt whatever strategies, but, you know, it's not like you have to go out and find some, um, some new box of soap to sell. I mean, these are pretty basic things. Uh, I mean, it's hard to be against. Uh, and I think the leadership is here. I, mean, I, don't, I, don't, I think it just needs, be more encouragement, and, and I would challenge you and my children, and, and any, anybody else to just get in there and make things happen. Uh, uh, I've seen you tackle a project that you knew was going to be biting off an elephant uh, when you made your film, and that was scary as could be. Uh, I was scared for you, <laughs> uh, but you know, you did that, and, uh, and there are other things that can be done in this community. That's just an example for you, but that was that was a big deal. So that's that's my answer. I don't know if that answers your
0: question or not. And then lastly, what what will propel what will propel us forward? Which you've kind of covered, but I think it's from a slightly different angle. Just what will propel us forward? I thought about that a lot too.
1: Well, if you were a five-foot-seven, 44-year-old Jewish comedian actor in the Ukraine right now, then the answer would be Mr. Putin and Russia. That has brought that whole country together and has brought the world together to collectively fight what is an existential threat for the Ukraine. And, I'm not suggesting that we need a threat here to bring us all together. Uh, I wouldn't wish that on us. Uh, In some measure, the pandemic offered that opportunity, but it was not something that that everybody felt personally, certainly not at first, uh, or even threatened too much by So it it, it didn't achieve that result, it's fine. Uh, the truth is is, uh, is that while we don't face the same immediate existential threat that Ukraine does, I, I think that our community does face an existential threat. Um, uh, it's not as immediate, but I mean, I think we're at a crossroads. Um, and we're either going to be a continued shrinking market with uh, uh, diminishing population base, uh, fewer good paying jobs, uh, things that don't make a place a community good to live in and enjoyable to live in, well we're going to turn the corner. Uh, I mean and, and I don't think waiting for some threat or waiting for some uh, development to come our way to make things turn around is that's not really a viable alternative. I mean we were blessed by the wisdom of our forefathers uh, who deposited huge hydrocarbon deposits here about 200 million years ago. That's a little sarcasm. I shouldn't embrace it. And that has been the one thing that has been, it's been up and down, but it's been pretty much our economic raison trade for a long time. Uh, and we'll have cyclical times on that, right? And that's actually good. Uh, but we need more than that. Uh, and as I pointed out these examples of Oklahoma City and Savannah, I mean, we're only limited by our vision and our execution of it. And that's been for leadership. So, uh, I don't I can't tell you how to, I don't have any specific ideas about how to identify that leadership, support that leadership, train that leadership or whatever, uh, but I bet you there's some people in your generation that could figure it out. And if they needed help getting some, looking at other cities and seeing how anybody else has ever done it mm-hmm. and what could be done to make that happen here, I bet you could get the help i I'll, I'll guarantee you you get the help. I'll help you, for sure. That's, that's how I feel about it. Okay. Thank well, for thanks, today. thank you Thank you, Jeffrey, thank you very much.
0: Enjoy it. Didn't thanks. know what you were going to ask. <laughs> well Thanks for uh, being willing to be a part. I knew you'd be okay. the perfect first go at this. Okay. Thanks so much. Thank you.